everybody welcome to the cop house podcast i'm doug and i'm the son and i'm ron i'm the dad this is a bi-weekly podcast that covers all things policing we are a father and son combo with over 33 combined years of police experience our show will tackle anything and everything you could possibly think of regarding the great policing profession nothing's off limits welcome to episode number six of the cop house podcast we are two generations one great calling and i kind of dropped the ball this week because we were going to have a guest and that didn't happen. That's okay, because I have been waiting for six episodes to do this episode. To talk about some nerd stuff. No. <laughs> yes. Today, we're going to talk about evidence collection and preservation, a topic that I, I get so excited even thinking about it, evidence collection. And just kind of some general crime scene stuff and some stories about crime scenes that we've been to and worked and just some interesting things along the way doug and i doug as you know we try to create a family-friendly show here but at the end of the day we are talking about police stuff so because this is an evidence collection show we may dive into an area where you might not want the kids to listen to this particular episode so if you're listening to this in the car and the kids are in the back seat you might want to flip it over to something else for this particular episode slightly lighter disclaimer than last week last week's uh Last week's topic was pretty heavy. Um, this one isn't really going to be quite as heavy, but just kind right. of the nature of it. It, it, it could could be a little graphic. It could, sure. So <clears throat> let me, can I, can I tee this up a little bit for us? Absolutely. You know, we're talking about evidence collection and preservation. Under the bigger heading, I guess, of forensic science. A lot, you know, a lot of people, if they, if they watch television or police shows, they're familiar with CSI. Mm-hmm. But, but perhaps the bigger topic here, the bigger heading, is forensic science and if if you think of what what is forensic science <coughs> forensic science is the application of scientific facts and principles to solve a legal problem so it's the application of science to solve a legal problem that's forensic science well what's the legal problem the problem is you have a crime scene and you have to establish who committed that crime and to to bring about justice to prosecute that person to to ensure that if they are in fact guilty, a guilty verdict is reached. So that that's the broader heading of forensic science. Well, what we're not going to talk about, I guess maybe let's start there, what, what we're not going to talk about today. We're not gonna talk about CSI. We're, we're not gonna talk about- Yeah, we already did our movies and TV shows episode. Yeah, we're not gonna talk <laughs> about how people run around in $3,000, $4,000 Armani suits, driving Ferraris, rolling up on crime scenes and solving these things in 45 minutes. Yeah. We're, we're not gonna talk about that. Yeah, taking a swipe of something and then taking a picture of it and they're like, oh yeah, that's, John Smith did it. Yeah, and and I can get fingerprints. Not how it works. I can get fingerprints off a swimming pool, off the water from a swimming pool. I mean, we're we're, just, we're not we're not going to dive into However, that, into that silliness. What is kind of interesting though, yeah. since you mentioned that, is uh-huh. you know some of the things that people might not know, or some of the things you can get fingerprints off. Yes. I've heard you told me an impressive story. I believe you one time got fingerprints off of a 
pizza box. A pizza right? box. Yeah, I did. And yeah, and I, I can I just jotted that down here yeah. on my notes in the stack. I can talk about the great pizza box caper of <laughs> 2002, maybe. I, I don't know. Well, so. I mean, the reason it's interesting is because people who do know a little bit about, you know, maybe evidence collection, how stuff works, you know, generally people think, you know, smooth yeah, smooth, hard surface. That's the only thing you can get fingerprints off. Not, yeah. not always. Not always. Sometimes you can get prints off non, uh, off the, uh, off the porous, mm-hmm. uh, um, textured surfaces as well. As much as CSI, you know, dramatizes some of the capabilities of forensic science, there are things that are pretty impressive that some people might not know about. Right. So we're not going to talk about CSI. We're not going to talk about laboratories. Now, mm-hmm. if you if you go back and listen to an earlier episode of the Cop House podcast uh, on the I-96 shooter, I spoke briefly about crime lab specialist Rob Charlton from the Oakland County Sheriff's Crime Lab and mm-hmm. how he matched ballistic or firearms expert from uh, a, a bullet, an, an unknown bullet, to a known gun, and, and he was able to determine that, that that bullet did, in fact, come out of that the barrel of that particular firearm. Which, we should try to get him on at some oh, point. Oh, yes, absolutely. He's one of the heroes of, of that case, in my in my opinion. So, But we're not going to talk about laboratory analysis. We're not going to talk about... Um, <clears throat> doing analysis on blood work or, or semen or, or um, looking at things under the, sp- uh, the spectron microscope. That's not what we're talking about. Yeah, this is going to be more about, you know, the actual scene and what takes place at the scene and some scenes we've been to. Right. So th- probably the better heading of what we're going to talk about is evidence collection and preservation. Evidence collection and preservation. This is going to be the men and women who work for police departments or maybe even a crime lab mm-hmm. who go out to scenes and they collect evidence in a manner so that it can be preserved for later forensic analysis by those very intelligent people with the advanced degrees mm-hmm. in the crime lab. Yeah. So, so this is just not about, you know, the lab side. That's right. Of those things. Yep. So a uh, little little background about how I got interested in um, evidence collection and preservation. I, I had been on the job for about a year. I, I started in 1995 as a police officer, and right around early 1996, uh, I put in to go to evidence technician school, evidence tech or um, crime scene technician school. Mm-hmm. And I, I went to that two-week course and, and instantly fell in love with the techniques that I learned. And, and I, I was very blessed in that the department sent me to a number of ad, advanced training in that as well. So that, that's kind of how I got started. And I, you know, I'm proud to say I was an evidence tech for my entire police career. I didn't do really much of it as a, as a chief and as a lieutenant, but, but I absolutely loved it, Doug. And I, like I said, I've been waiting for this episode for six episodes here <laughs> to talk about evidence collection. I, I, as we were chatting before you hit the record button, you had talked maybe a little bit, you had said you might want me to talk a little bit about the Ford plant shooting. Oh yeah, that'd be awesome. Okay, well, as I said, I, I started, I went to the evidence technician school in maybe January or February of 1996. Well, a very tragic and, and interesting event took place in November of 1996. In November the, 14th, if I am correct. You are absolutely correct. Yes. Uh, November 14th, 1996, in the city of Wixom. And uh, at the time, we had 
in in the city we had the largest automotive manufacturing plant under one roof in the world in the city of Wixom. They made Lincoln Town Cars, right? Lincoln they started out making Thunderbirds. Okay. Back in 1957, but ultimately at the time of the plant closing they were making yeah, the 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 Lincoln Town Cars. Mm-hmm. I, I think for a while there they made the Continentals, but the Town Cars was their kind of their bread and butter. The plant was huge. I remember it. Yeah, I when they added the paint, the paint uh department uh, to the north, it then became the largest plant under one roof in the in the world took you like 10 minutes just to drive by it on Wixom Road. Yes. Yeah. 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 So on November 14th of 1996, so we're, we're, we're talking like 10 months after I had graduated from Evidence Tech School, a man and went into that plant and he entered in through the security gate. And back then in 1996, unfortunately, there were no safeguards keeping people from just simply walking into the plant there were no concrete barriers you know now you can't even approach a school or a government building without one of the giant planter boxes that Mm -hmm. that would require a a sherman tank to move it well there was nothing like that doug in 1996 you could literally walk from wixom road west and walk straight into the plant pretty much unobstructed by a person or an object and that's exactly what this guy did uh you know we talked about this a little bit, and I think you and I agree that we don't like to name the bad guys. No. We don't want to give them the notoriety. You can go ahead and look them up, do a Google search on Ford Wixom Assembly Plant Shooter. You'll you'll see exactly who he is and where he's currently housed in the Michigan Department of Corrections. Forever, by the way. Forever. Yeah. yeah. He's not getting out. Um, but we're not going to name his name on this podcast. Uh Shooter walks in there and he he shoots up, he steals a truck, he shoots up the security uh, gate, the the security window uh, where where um, Ford Plant Security was located. He walks in, he sees the first person he encounters upon breaching the entrance of the plant is Mr. Daryl Izzard. Now I I will name victims, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in in honor to Mr. Izzard and, and to his family. He encounters poor Mr. Izzard, who was the um, assistant plant manager. And Mr. Izzard, unfortunately, that day happened to be wearing a, 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 a white shirt and a tie. And the shooter identified him as plant management and proceeded to chase him down a long hallway and then ultimately executed Mr. Izzard while he was hiding under a desk in one of the offices. Terrible. Yeah, very, very awful. So the the, the 911 calls start coming out and... Wixom police officers respond as well as everyone in the world started state responding. police sheriff's so, office no surrounding Oakland agencies. county sheriff's department i mean it you know <clears throat> as as short as two hours after the shooting took place if you look down Wixom road it looked like a police convention i mean there were police cars from as far away as you know down river and mm-hmm. you know up in the flint area i mean they were coming from everywhere self-dispatching themselves which, well, which, quick yeah, go side ahead. note, it has nothing to do with our topic, but this was pre-Columbine. It's it's amazing to me that as much as in like police training and stuff, talking about active shooter scenarios, Columbine is brought up. I'm I'm kind of surprised that this incident hasn't had more. I don't want to say notoriety, but I guess I'm surprised it's not more well known, especially in like police training and and dealing with active shooters. Just because I mean. This is pre-Columbine. I mean, I'm surprised yes. that this isn't a big one 
that's a topic of discussion too. Agreed. Yeah, I agree. That's shocking to me. In our last uh, episode, when we um, interviewed um, Detect uh, Sergeant Mo, and we talked about human trafficking, Mm -hmm. you know, twenty years ago, the phrase human trafficking wasn't even a thing. Mm -hmm. It it was a thing as a crime, but the phrase human trafficking wasn't wasn't in anyone's vocabulary. Likewise, on November fourteenth of nineteen ninety six, the phrase "active shooter" mm-hmm. was not in the vocabulary of cops. Yeah, um, you know the 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 closest other active shooter that that I can remember from being in college or high school or early on in my police career was the Royal Oak. And again, we're 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 broadcasting here. We're we're recording this from Southeast Michigan, mm-hmm. so Royal Oak, Michigan, the the Royal Oak Post Office shooting occurred interestingly enough five years to the day before the ford plant shooting it happened on hmm. november 14th of 91 hmm. so uh, you know a lot of the a lot of the cops i knew and a lot of the people i worked with knew the phrase quote going postal which is not a, a kind thing to to say about postal workers but mm-hmm. but i mean it you know it kind of got traction that that phrase going postal from this royal oak michigan post office i shooting. didn't know that yeah. So here we are, November 14th of 96, and active shooter investigations or active shooter responses wasn't even a thing yet. Was there a different term for that kind of incident or no? Workplace violence. I, I mean, you know, okay. th- th- this this probably fell under the heading of workplace violence, although the shooter didn't work at Ford, for Ford Motor Company. Yeah, yeah. And that, that, that could be a whole nother episode. I, I have to kind of remember here. We're, t- <laughs> we're talking about evidence collection. Sorry, impress- I kind of I derailed th- no, that whole thing. <laughs> no, this this is good stuff. I, I, I hope our audience enjoys the, the, the stories, the, mm-hmm. po- the police stories, but... It could be its whole other oh, yeah. episode. We could, we could do a whole episode that's just a case study on that, to that dis- incident. Yeah, because there was a specific reason why this shooter went into the plant that I'm not going to hit on right now. So that's kind of a little teaser for you to maybe keep your eye out for future episodes of the Cop House Podcast. There yeah. was a reason he went there. Um, yeah, that could be a whole episode just talking about that incident, not through the specific lens of the crime scene thing right. anyways so yeah so i'm going to try to pick <laughs> up the pace here a little bit our, our wixom officers chased the shooter throughout the plant they engaged in an ongoing gun battle he had a rifle our guys our wixom officers had shotguns and they're they're just shooting back and forth back and forth well our guys pushed the shooter out of the uh, southwest corner of the plant pushed him outside he ran uh, towards a drainage ditch that went under I-96, and the gun battle continued outside. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it went on and on and on. Well, in the meantime, a couple sheriff's deputies were responding from court, which was right around the corner from the plant. They, they heard it come out over the radio. They responded. They get down on the on-ramp to Interstate 96, and they also engaged this guy in a gun battle because they're close enough on the, yeah, because the, the yard like paralleled right up, right up basically to the freeway. Yes, the yeah. Ford Ford Motor Company property went right up adjacent to INET, to Interstate 96. Mm-hmm. These two deputies engage him in a gun battle as well as our two Wixom officers. Well, the two deputies get shot. Now, now, thank God they they lived and they survived and they had long careers, long successful careers. Uh, but but he has now killed the assistant plant manager and wounded two sheriff's deputies well he, he and go- shot at two more cops too 
with oh, yeah. some cops. Yeah. Yes, right. So he goes into this drainage ditch or this culvert that goes under 96 and, and stays there for about the next eight hours until ultimately, November 14th, 1996, although it was a beautiful, sunny, blue skies, beautiful day, it was cold. Mm-hmm. It, was in the, it was in the low 20s that day. And he, he's in this culvert with no coat on. Eventually, right around 5, 5.30 in the evening, he surrenders. He comes out and hands up, he surrenders. And police take him into custody. Mm-hmm. What on earth does this have to do with evidence collection and preservation? Well, I bet I you're going to tell us. I, I'm going to try to. I'm going to try. I'm going to try and stay on task here. Um, I had just graduated from uh, evidence evidence tech school, and my sergeant at the time, who later became my chief, he said, "You know, we want a Wixom representative to be part of the evidence collection team." And for some reason, I still don't understand. He said, "Ron." I want you to be the Wixom rep to tag along with the Oakland County Crime Lab to process all these scenes. Now, you have to remember, we had multiple crime scenes. The stolen pickup truck was a crime scene. The entrance to the plant where uh, he had shot up the security gate was a crime scene. The ongoing gun battle throughout the plant was a crime scene. The area where poor uh, Mr. Izzard was lying deceased was a crime scene. His apartment that we later found out where he lived, he lived in Wixom in an apartment, that was a crime scene. And my boss told me, he said, I, you know, obviously the sheriff's office is better equipped to handle this than a rookie police officer who just <laughs> freshly graduated from FTech school. Right. But, but he wanted, it was important to him that a, because this occurred in the city, to have mm-hmm. a Wixom representative as part of that team. So, one of my very first crime scenes straight out of FTech school was perhaps the biggest event to ever happen in the city of Wixom, this, yeah, this Ford plant shooting. And it's like a two-mile-long crime scene at that oh, point, it's, right? It, it's enormous, yeah. just enormous. So, you know, he, he turns himself in right around 5 or 5.30 in the evening. It's just starting to get dark. And at this point, nobody had processed a single scene. Now, when I say processed a scene... What I'm referring to for our audiences, if you're not familiar with what evidence tech or crime scene techs do, they, they take photographs. They do a sketch of the scene with measurements. They collect cartridge casings. They, they label cartridge casings um, that come out of the end of the, the rifle. Um, they have to photograph the body. They have to take blood samples that, that might be on the ground. I mean, there, there, there's a lot to it. Mm-hmm. So if he turned himself in at 5.30, no one had even started processing any scene yet because it was still an active shooter scene. Mm -hmm. We had no idea where he was. We had a good idea he was in the culvert that went under 96, but we're not going to put cops in harm's way taking photographs. If he could pop up somewhere potentially still shooting. He could pop up and kill him. So so everything was just buttoned down and... Not a single crime scene had been processed until he was taken into custody. Mm-hmm. So, so he's now safely in custody, heading for the Oakland County Jail. And finally, then and only then, did the bosses say, okay, crime lab, get, get to work. And they had been on standby probably for hours. So 5.30, 6 o'clock, the crime lab starts its, 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 its deal. Photography, sketching, c- 
collecting, labeling, bagging up evidence, this, that, and the other. And I, I, I'm very blessed I got to be a part of, of a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And I, anything else? I mean, I, you know. No, I mean, I, that's, I, that's a good overview of the incident. Um, like we said before, we could definitely do a whole episode on that. Sure. Um, which would be very interesting. So what about this crime scene? For you as a brand new evidence technician at that point, what sticks out to you just as kind of the most, I guess the most interesting part of working that scene, I guess. And, you know, and like you said, there's tons of different parts to it, tons Mm -hmm. of different, you know, I guess you could say like secondary scenes, you know, like the truck itself being a scene that has to be processed. I guess overall... What, I mean, what are some of the high points? What are some of the more interesting parts? A couple things jump out at me. One, in 1996, there was no digital photography. Mm-hmm. We're, we're using 35 millimeter film. Mm-hmm. And the crime lab specialist who was in charge of photography, they, now when you get a big scene like this, typically a team will come out. You, you don't have one evidence tech doing this scene. So the, the crime lab showed up with about five people. They showed up in their vans, loaded with all of their evidence collection gear, and there was a team of about five of them. Well, beforehand, they decide, okay, Bill, you're you're the photography guy today. Mm-hmm. Uh, Susie, you're the you're the sketch person today. Jim, you're collecting cartridge casings. Steve, you're collecting blood, and they all assign, they all divvy up the the, the different responsibilities. So what? What kind of sticks out at me now, as I, you know, before I left the city, I, I had, a, I've had several chances to go back through the case file and look, just the sheer volume of photographs that were taken at that at that scene. How it, many? If you had to, if you had to guess, ballpark it. Fifteen hundred, two thousand. Yeah. Wow. And and if you figure back then, you know, thirty-five millimeter film, you 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 could get about twenty-four pictures per roll of film. Oh, so this was just rolls and rolls, rolls and rolls and rolls. I mean, it. Cr- wow. Yeah, the sheer volume of, of 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 this crime scene, the the collecting of the cartridge casings. Uh, he had to have fired well over a hundred shots that day. I, I don't mm-hmm. exactly know how many. You know, uh, taking custody. Um, you know, releasing custody of the body. To, mm-hmm. to, to the Oakland County morgue or the medical examiner's office. I mean, mm-hmm. these are all things that evidence techs or crime scene techs are typically going to be responsible for. Well, you were talking about how many shots he fired too and, and kind of combining that with the photography aspect. Mm-hmm. You know, you're looking to, at that point, photograph the location of every shell casing mm-hmm. in addition to the, you know, like getting into crime scene photography, I guess. Yeah, You know, and you can correct me too. I, I've done... A little bit of it and observe some of it but obviously you have way more experience than i do with working crime scenes but uh you know you want a broader picture that shows the location of something and then another up close shot of what that thing is Mm -hmm. so you're talking over 100 rounds that he's fired so you got all these establishing shots and then these close-up shots of all these casings Mm -hmm. you got the casings because he engaged the officers in gunfire as well yep. you have their casings too yep in addition to trying to find locations where those bullets impacted mm-hmm. you got to photograph those too i mean when you're talking about 1500 to 2000 photos that you know when you start to think about those things 
it makes sense that it's that many. Yes, honestly. Well, well I, you know, he engaged in an ongoing gun battle with the two Wixom police officers, mm-hmm. and then later the two Oakland County Sheriff's deputies. the The job of the evidence tech, or or the the evidence collection team in this case, is to try to find where all those rounds went, where all those bullets went, mm-hmm. and you know, here we are in an assembly plant, mm-hmm. so. How many bullet holes were in the sides of Lincoln's? How many bullet holes were in the sides of filing cabinets or windows or doors? How many how many bullets were actually recovered? I again, I was a rookie police officer mm-hmm. who was just kind of thrown a bone by his boss to hey tag along with the crime lab. But let's be honest, I, I wasn't doing as much as they were. What so, did they have you doing? watching <laughs> i honestly doug i i didn't do i didn't do very much i you know they were the experts they show up they've got their procedure i was the guy so that you know wixom police department would be able to say in court yes we had a wixom police department representative on the evidence collection team sure i, sure. I remember it, it's been a long time it was a long time ago yeah. i remember one of my primary responsibilities was to Kind of, kind of, not guard, but uh, to um, kind of oversee the, the releasing of Mr. Izzard's remains over to the Oakland County Medical Examiner's Office. Mm-hmm. I, I actually signed for his body when, when they came and took him to the medical examiner's office for autopsy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that was, I, honestly, I, <laughs> I didn't do very much at, at this particular scene. Yeah, I mean... Where where I had the opportunity to do more was after, so it, it's it's now rapidly approaching midnight, and I'm I'm actually to this day I'm still kind of flabbergasted and astounded that this five person evidence collection team was able to wrap up this crime scene in about six hours. I you know I I figured they'd be there for days, but mm-hmm. but efficient. They they knew what they were doing. They were prof- they're professional. They they had it they had it pretty much wrapped up by about midnight. That is impressive. That is very impressive. So the crime lab is they're packing up their stuff. They're getting ready to head back to to their home base. I had just signed over um, the the deceased to the Oakland County Medical Examiner's Office, and I went and found my boss, the the same sergeant who had told me, "Hey, tag along with the crime lab." I went and found him, and I said, "All right, what do you got for me now?" And he said, well, you know, you've been here all day. Why don't you head home? I says, no, I don't want to go home. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a rookie police officer. I, I said, I, w- I want more to do. This is the biggest thing that has ever hit Wixom. I, I want something else to do. And he said, well, we're getting ready to head over to the shooter's apartment. Why don't you, why don't you head over there with me? So me, uh, one of, my, one of my, my buddies who started eh, a few months before me, mm-hmm. we, we jumped in the car with the Sarge and we head over to the apartment that had been, you know, we had a uniformed officer sitting on it since, since the moment we knew it was his place. Mm-hmm. We, we had it locked down and, you know, crime scene tape over the front of it to make sure nobody went in or out of it. So we, we go in there into the shooter's apartment with a, with a search warrant. And now again, we have another crime scene, mm-hmm. you know, so here we are armed with a search warrant affidavit that lists, okay, collect any, th- any type of weapon, any type of uh, literature, any type of notations or, or documents suggesting that he might be plotting this crime and anything 
that would substantiate this um, this crime of violence. So we, we went in and spent uh, probably an hour or so there photographing that scene, collecting that scene. Now, we didn't have the Oakland County Crime Lab come out and do the apartment. Wixom Police Department, me, uh, my fellow officer, and the sergeant, we, we handled it ourselves. Mm-hmm. But um, there was one particular piece of evidence that uh, my fellow officer found that was not specifically named in the search warrant affidavit, and that was an engagement ring. Which that is going to be getting into yes. if we do an episode just on this case. That's gonna that's gonna come in huge. Yes, indeed. And and I'm I'm not going to go into it now. Again, that's a little teaser. Uh, we found an engagement ring in the garbage can of this apartment bathroom, mm-hmm. and thought, hmm, interesting that there would be an engagement ring in the apartment. Odd place bathroom. for that. Odd place for that. Yeah. Which put, potentially could go to motive and a. Later, we found out it did go to motive. Again, big teaser. Big teaser. Big teaser for a future episode. So, but (laughs) the engagement ring wasn't listed in the search warrant affidavit. You know, we had things like weapons, ammunition, literature, documents, anything that might substantiate a crime of violence. We didn't have anything in there about jewelry. Nobody anticipated that this was going to be some sort of crime of passion. Which this could go into a whole other subtopic of how search warrants are obtained and phrased right. and stuff, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you actually you have a, a ton of experience with search warrant affidavits and, and search warrants, but perhaps more than me. I I, I don't know about that. Uh, I, I think I think you might. I haven't written a whole too many myself, but anyways. So we here we are. It's now approaching one o'clock in the morning, and we're at this we're at the shooter's apartment with this engagement ring that we had just photographed and now we're like okay now now what do we do it's not listed in the in the search warrant affidavit so in 1996 we weren't doing search warrants via fax machine and we weren't doing search warrants via email Uh, there was no email in 96. you gotta go knock on a judge's door (laughs) we had to wake up a very grumpy (laughs) disheveled judge in his bathrobe and stand in his kitchen at one at one thirty in the morning, and swear to a new search warrant affidavit, uh-huh. saying we would now like to collect the ring, please, Your <laughs> Honor, if we may. And he he approved it, and we went back and collected the ring, get all this evidence, take it back to the station, and you know part of the jo- a big part of the job of an evidence technician or a crime scene tech is to not only collect this stuff, but you have to preserve it. Mm-hmm which means you've got to bag it. You've got to bag it in the, the tamper-resistant um, boxes or bags with the tamper-resistant tape. You've got to label it with the date and the time and the location and mm-hmm. your name and your badge number and what it is. And, and you, you have to make sure all this stuff is preserved. There's a ton that goes into it on the a, back end, yeah. A, a ton, yeah. I, you, know, you, you can go and spend two hours at a crime scene and spend five hours at the station just properly preserving this stuff and making sure it's put away properly. Mm-hmm. So we, we go back to the station. It's probably now 2 o'clock in the morning, maybe 2.30. And we, we're now starting to tag this stuff and bag it and, and do everything we need to do to make sure it's preserved. And I look at my sergeant, again, it's, it's probably pushing 3 o'clock in the morning, and I says, okay, now what do you want? Now what can I do? I, I, stu- I, I, I still wasn't ready to go home. Right. And he said, 
go home. It's over. The, go home and <laughs> get some sleep. It, 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 this day is over. <laughs> right. So, so that was, you know, that if we had if we had a um, a crime lab specialist on here who was actually there, they could probably really get into the the nuts and bolts of what was done that day. But from my perspective, as a rookie police officer and a rookie evidence tech, mm-hmm. that was my perspective on that Ford plant shooting. Yeah. So. Any other high points on? that scene and that incident from the you know from the the lens of the crime scene side any other high points of that you think you want to hit you, you know Doug I don't think so I you know the, the the sheer volume of the evidence that was collected uh you know not only from the the plant itself but from the apartment mm-hmm. I mean it occupied you know Wixom Police Department at the back then was about a 12 to 15 person police agency in in a rather small police station well here we are trying to cram all of this property into an evidence room knowing full well that we might not be able to get rid of this property until 10 15 maybe 20 years down the road after yeah, till, all the all his appeals are exhausted all the appeals yeah. are, and even after the appeals i by the time I left the Wixom police station, I still think the the local prosecutor's office was telling our, our property manager, eh, still hold on to it. Really? And, and that was 25 years ago. So, yeah. That's it, crazy. So, the sheer volume of evidence, the sheer volume of photographs, the, the, the mystery engagement ring, I mean, th- those were some of the high points I recall from that day 27 years ago. We're probably gonna have to put a pin in the rest of that because now mm-hmm. the more we talk about it, because you, you know, you you've told me stories about this whole incident before, especially when I was younger and first expressed interest in police work. You you've talked to me. We've talked pretty extensively about a lot of the details of this. Mm-hmm. I would love to do a whole episode just on this. Yes, I I would too, and and it might involve me returning to my former agency and and requesting permission from the current chief of police to maybe take a peek at the case file again because yeah. so many of these details you know you you commented during the i-96 shooter episode that i had no notes in front of me well yeah. I, I i i know that case pretty much like the back of my hand because i was involved in it in 1996 i was a rookie police officer a yeah. lot of what i know about the ford plant shooting i know because i read about it mm-hmm. not because i experienced it i mean i was there after the fact yeah and the whole department was there after the fact but but I well, you have a thorough knowledge of this scene, I, though. I, I do from my perspective, right, sure. Right, yeah, right, right. So some of some of some of the maybe less dramatic scenes that 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 I've processed over the years, and mm. and Doug, you've you've done evidence collection work too, so a little bit, yeah, a little bit. I'm so I'm not an evidence tech. Um, at my, you know, when I was with Detroit, mm-hmm. um, I had very limited work with evidence technician work because we had a unit it was called crime scene services you know on the patrol side Mm -hmm. if you had a scene that required um evidence technician work Mm -hmm. you know if you had a a shooting or homicide or something like that you would actually call and you'd get a supervisor to actually request crime scene services to come out usually they'd have like two trucks with two people a piece um that were working at any given time and they would come out and they would process it. And basically from the patrol side, all you would do is just make sure nothing gets messed with. I right. mean, you would just do, you would just preserve the scene, make sure nobody's traipsing through it. Um, the most that you would, that we would do on the patrol side there is, you know, if you had, 
sometimes we would have like a like a drive-by shooting or something where there's a whole block that's mm-hmm. got shell casings down it. Mm-hmm. You might help be another pair of eyes walking down the block. Oh, here's some more. Here's some more. Found some more. Mm-hmm. Marking them. Um, it's kind of a running joke that DPD didn't give us all the equipment we needed. We didn't. Sometimes we didn't have like evidence markers we'd be tearing off sheets of our notebook paper and folding it into a little tent and setting it there right and hope the wind doesn't blow it away <laughs> right yeah, yeah we'd be like hey anybody find some pebbles or something i could put on top of this notebook paper to mark these shell casings <laughs> right before they photograph it the evidence text would come through and they would put their actual marker tents on it mm-hmm. but it was just funny i have memories of looking for shell casings i don't have any any evidence markers so tearing off notebook paper or or the other thing we'd do, we'd tear off pieces of uh, crime scene tape mm. and just set them on the ground with like a rock on top of it yeah. so it didn't blow away. I, I, I don't think you're giving yourself quite enough credit because I, I do know that you went out and you purchased your own crime scene kit. And yeah. and on things that you wouldn't call out the the dedicated Evtex for, you've you've actually had some success in fingerprinting. Yeah. Uh, on your yeah. on your let's say it's a home invasion, a burglary of mm-hmm. a, of a, of, a, of a residence, uh, a home. Yeah. Um I know you've had some success. Yeah. And that's that's kind of something too that gets into some of the weird things about how a big department like Detroit works. And this isn't me talking poorly of Detroit at all. That's I I don't want that to be misunderstood, but you know, when you have a department that size with that volume of reports and crimes coming in, mm-hmm. um not everything not everything gets the full attention it deserves all the time. And that's just the reality of big city with a high volume. That's not, that's talking not, bad about the department. That's right. not talking bad about anybody who works for the department. That's just the reality of it. If the Evtex are going on, you know, four shootings and a stabbing, they probably don't have time in that shift to hit the home invasion. Yeah. Especially, I, the, especially, especially the home invasion you know the home invasion twos stuff where unoccupied yeah unoccupied dwelling where Mm -hmm. somebody took a tv you know the evidence techs aren't coming out to that right so nine times out of ten i would even say 99 times out of 100 you're gonna show up take that report um and at that point you're basically just taking that report so they could make like a homeowner's insurance claim right you know there's gonna be really no investigation you might look for some camera footage or something and and if there is, then that's something to go on. But if there's nothing else to go on, a lot of times those just get, those would just get closed out. But you've had some fingerprinting success. Right. And that's the kind of interesting part. So there's not, and from my understanding, I don't think there's any type of certification for lifting fingerprints. Nope. It's just you either know how to do it or you don't. You have, if you lift a fingerprint and, and you don't have a lot of experience in it, mm-hmm or you don't have like a, a track record of being successful, Yeah, the defense attorney might keep you on the stand for an additional five minutes trying to make you look foolish. Right. But but there is no specific credential that says, thou shalt not lift fingerprints without this credential. Yeah. So yeah. So you did, you bought it yourself and yeah. went out and started doing it. Yeah, I, which I, is I, cool. talked, I talked to some folks at the crime scene services and some of the people who were in the detective unit at the time i wasn't in the detective unit at the time i was working patrol and basically found out how they liked lifted fingerprints to be packaged Mm -hmm. um because generally when you had something that involved fingerprints being lifted crime scene services would do it there was no policy against patrol doing it Mm. if you had one of those scenes where maybe you know home invasion 2 or something like that where crime scene services isn't coming out but you know there could be some benefit to throwing some fingerprint powder around Mm -hmm. um there wasn't a policy against doing it so yeah like you said i actually bought my own 
uh, latent print kit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and a latent print is a invisible print. Mm-hmm. You know, latent meaning yep. not visible to the naked eye. Yeah. So, yeah. I bought a pretty decent kit, too. I think I mm-hmm. spent 100, 120 bucks on it or something like that. It's, it was, you know, a nice plastic case. It yeah. had a couple different types of powders, a couple different colors, different mm-hmm. applicators. Yeah. Uh, it had a magnetic powder. Um, magnetic powder in there as well mm-hmm. um so yeah i bought my own because i like you being a fellow nerd i like <laughs> i like evidence collection and, yeah. and crime scene stuff so yeah. Yeah. I, yeah i had some i had some success with mm-hmm. lifting some prints i don't know if those ever went anywhere right but uh i i did get some pretty decent prints off of some of those you know uh home evasion twos, some of those unoccupied dwellings that mm-hmm. were broken into with some property stolen yeah um kind of a funny story mm. i uh <laughs> i actually got in trouble Uh-oh. um because i lifted prints off of a scene myself that some supervisors later decided we should have requested evidence text for oh okay all right <laughs> and i lifted good prints too yeah. there were there were some of my better ones that i that i was able to develop and lift yeah. And, and yeah put into you know submit mm-hmm. um <laughs> it was a it was a home invasion one, which is an occupied dwelling, so a, a serious crime. Yeah, it was. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, there was a, a older gentleman who was outside doing some yard work, and somebody actually approached him, mm. pointed a gun at him, mm. and said, "You're going to bring us in your house, and we're going to take your stuff." And so he, at gunpoint, let them in the house, mm. and they took a bunch of his stuff, including his car keys. Took his car too. Took a bunch of money, jewelry, electronics. I mean, they took this guy for like everything mm-hmm. and um i i don't know why but for for whatever reason i didn't think they were gonna have evidence text come out for it mm-hmm. i was like it's a armed robbery home invasion one you know generally the evidence texts were in in my experience up to that point i'd only ever seen them come out for shootings and homicides right so i'm like i'm gonna throw some powder around yeah <laughs> I got I got some good prints. I, I, I re-interviewed the victim. I wasn't even the primary unit. The primary mm. unit knew that I liked doing fingerprints and called me. It was like, hey, you want to come over here and throw some powder around? Mm. Sure. Sure, I will. Yeah. yeah. So I, I re-interviewed him and specified. He, he very distinctly remembered that one of the guys had, none of them had gloves on, and the one guy had grabbed this one doorknob mm. to get into the bedroom mm-hmm. while the other guy had him at gunpoint. I was like, great. It was a nice smooth like brass doorknob mm-hmm. got a great thumbprint off it yeah terrific thumbprint and uh and the bosses got angry and they were <laughs> they were livid livid i got called into the supervisor's office and um <laughs> I, I didn't i didn't actually get in trouble and get written up or anything like that because i think technically there wasn't like a policy violation or anything but right. i got i got reamed pretty thoroughly they're yeah. like you should have got the evidence text this should have been whole thing and i'm sitting there like Good print, though, ain't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, good thumbprint, right? Good, good print. Did you see it? Right. <laughs> oh, it's funny. And that's not to talk poorly about anyone. I sure. was, I was wrong. Right. We should have, we should have had evidence text come out to that. But right, right. It's just kind of a funny story. <laughs> so, for any young cops who might be listening to this, and you're, you know, maybe you're pretty new in your career, you're thinking, yeah, what, what kind of specialty might I, or what kind of specialized training might I want to get into? You know, do I want to, you know, we here on the Cop House podcast, we've talked about diving. We've talked about human trafficking investigations. We've talked briefly about drug investigations, uh, narcotics investigations. 
you know, are, are you, if you're thinking about, you know, do I want to be an evidence technician? Do I want to be a crime scene tech? I, I guess I would give a couple pieces of warning or advice to, mm-hmm. to, to that young officer. One, it's nothing like CSI. And if you've done this job for any length of time, you probably have already learned that much of what is done out in the world of policing doesn't quite resemble what you see in the movies and on television. Mm-hmm. So being an EvTech has nothing to do with CSI. The other thing I would advise the young officer on is, do you like to work alone? Do, 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 are you okay working by yourself? Because in my experience, Doug, and I don't know if it was this way in Detroit or if it's this way in your current agency, many times the patrol officer gets there first to the crime scene. Let's say it's a, a deceased person, mm-hmm. a suspicious death. Patrol officers are there first. Detectives might come out. Crime scene guys and girls probably will come out. In my experience, usually the last person in the building with the deceased is going to be the evidence technician. (laughs) The patrol guys and girls have typically finished their investigation. They've they're sitting in their car up front starting their their report. Starting their report (laughs) or they're on to the next call. They've left. Detectives might be there. They might not be because they might be doing some running around, interviewing witnesses. I have spent many, many, many hours all by myself in an apartment or a, a house or a business with a deceased person. Just just me and him or me and her. Mm-hmm. And it there you are. You're you're doing your your photography, you're preparing your sketch, you're taking your you're dusting for fingerprints, maybe you're collecting shoe prints or tire tracks or collecting blood or semen or unknown substances or hairs and fibers and it's just you and the deceased. So if you're a young cop thinking about being an EvTech Get used to being alone because often they're going to leave you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, unless you're with some massive department that has evidence techs go out in teams. Right. Yeah, yeah. Sure, right. Uh, the other thing I would say is um, be comfortable being up close and personal with a deceased individual. Well, if you're going to be a cop in general, you should probably <laughs> get kind of used to that too. Ag- agreed. I-, I agree with you. But I, I have to tell you, Doug, and this is probably where the disclaimer was wise mm-hmm. for us to give it the, on the front end of yeah. this, this particular episode, and I'll give it again because I'm about to describe something that you probably don't want your kids listening to. As an evidence tech, I have taken many, many, many photographs up close and personal of maggots mm-hmm. in the eye sockets and in the ears and in the nose and in the mouths of deceased individuals. Mm-hmm. Your your garden variety patrol officer isn't going to be that up close and personal. Like no. like the Evtex have to be. And right. and I've I've had I, I've been in crime scenes where the the patrol and I'm not saying this to brag or anything, but I've been in crime scenes with the deceased individual who's been there for weeks or months. Advanced decomposition. Advanced decomposition to the point smells to the point yeah. where the patrol officer can't even stand it. He, he he or she's outside gagging and Mm -hmm. I'm in there. I'm in there right in the face of this deceased person taking Mm -hmm. pictures of the, of the, of the, the fly larvae in the eye socket of the individual. So if you can't do that, don't go to EvTech school, please. (laughs) And, and also if you can't do that, maybe 
clarify how the department you're trying to work for works mm. also and, and that's you know that's just kind of one of those things that's different with different departments and types of departments too because mm. i'll say like with detroit um as a patrol officer in detroit i never had to even touch a dead person mm. it was a lot of you know you know lock it down wait for mm-hmm. evidence techs or detectives um it basically it, it, even the even the uh the evidence techs there didn't really have to touch them basically how we did it there was nobody touches a deceased person Hmm. except for the the folks from the medical examiner's office well i'm not even talking about touching the person because yeah you're by law Mm -hmm. a police officer shouldn't be touching or manipulating a dead body anyways the the dead body falls under the jurisdiction of the local medical examiner's office mm-hmm. i'm just talking about being there up close and personal and and let go ahead oh i was i was just gonna say uh an agency like mine where we don't have like our own medical examiner's office we yeah. have people who are on patrol mm-hmm. and or detectives it just depends who's been to the training mm-hmm. we have people who are uh trained as medical examiner investigators okay i see. so we we do our own medical examiner investigation and we have a uh uh neighboring jurisdiction that actually has a medical examiner's office mm-hmm. that we use for like autopsies and stuff but as far as coming out to the scene for us anyways like i said that's where i'm talking about yeah you know doing your research on a department that you're going to work for yep we do our own okay medical examiner investigations we have people who are trained in that yeah um you know, I'll, I'll give you a good example of being up close and personal as the EvTech. And I how, think and, I think I know which story you're about to tell. Yeah, probably. Oh boy. Yeah, and and how this being an EvTech probably isn't for every cop. Mm-hmm. We had been called out to a what appeared to be a suicide. Uh, a, ge- a gentleman had shot himself with a rifle in his chest while laying in bed. So the bullet went through his chest and come to find out it it exited through his back went through the mattress went through the box spring and the bullet ultimately lodged in the floor mm-hmm. well i'm processing the scene and he was wasn't really the the, the state of compos, decomposition wasn't terrible he had been there for a few days but it wasn't it wasn't really bad mm-hmm. so i'm processing the scene and I, I i can handle it i mean it doesn't smell great but i'm doing okay well, then the medical examiner's office showed up, and it's pretty much protocol that when they arrive, they will roll the body carefully so that the evidence tech or the detective, whoever, the, the evidence tech, the guy, the guy or girl with the camera, can take photographs of that portion of the body you can't see. Well, when they went to go roll him over, they rolled him over so that his back was facing me, and when they did that, I could hear this and that was the accumulated gases that were in his chest cavity now coming out of the exit wound in his back right into your face right into my face (laughs) and the guy from the body removal service who they do this constantly i mean i have a pretty strong stomach but when that happened i i started to gag a little bit and the the body room this is how warped cops are the body (laughs) removal guy he looks at me with this big grin on his face and he goes you all right there kid (laughs) and i says i said yep i'll be fine just let me take a picture here real quick 
and I took the picture and uh, so so by the way that is the story I thought you were about to tell yeah. that's so, exactly what I thought you were going to say I'm not intentionally trying to be gratuitously gross here I, I'm just trying to say being an FTech perhaps isn't for every cop mm-hmm. if you're considering it just know that you may have stuff leaking out at you in the process of doing your job yep um couple other cases, you know, I, I remember early on as an evidence tech, we had a, a, a long string of businesses that were all connected by doors. Um, so I, it was like a big building and then um, there was individual businesses, but they were all connected by pretty chintzy pedestrian doors. Well, a guy had entered through like the first one, no, no burglary alarm on this business. He had entered through the first one ransacked the place, stole a bunch of stuff, very easily kicked in the door and made his way into the second one and the third one and the fourth one and the fifth one and the sixth one. I think there were six total. I happened to be the evidence tech who was called to that particular scene. And I, I think I spent about five hours processing all those scenes. Doug, by the time I returned back to the police station, I had so much black fingerprint powder on my face, up my nose. Of course, you know, I, I'm going to sound like the grumpy old guy here. Back then, we didn't wear face <laughs> masks or any any kind of protection, you know. So I'm, I, I got black fingerprint powder up my nose and in my eye sockets and in my ears, and I just, I just, <laughs> I just look awful. And, and the guys are all laughing at me. You know, oh, did you have fun out at that big crime scene? <laughs> yeah. So, hey, listen, young police officer, evidence tech work might not be for you. I just, I just thought of a, another cool one mm. um, that I was actually with you for. Mm. I remember when I was probably 17 or 18 and I knew I wanted to be a cop and you were I believe uh the patrol supervisor on nights um I came to do a ride along with you and uh we're we're driving around stopped a couple cars or something like that and then I don't remember if somebody called you or got you on the radio but some investigative team from a neighboring agency was what they were watching some guys they were doing surveillance on some guys who had been hitting car dealerships and stop me and correct me at any point because nope. i was you know in high school or just nope. after high school so I don't... you got it right so far yep. okay well <laughs> uh they'd been hitting a bunch of car dealerships and they were doing surveillance on them and they were watching that while they were doing surveillance they went into one of the car dealerships in wixom yes um so they called you and they were like, hey, we're watching these guys. They're in one of your car dealerships right now, still watching them doing surveillance. And um, we were like down the road, you know, darked out in a parking lot, just waiting to hear what was going on. They end up leaving. Uh, they end up leaving the dealership and they had broken into a bunch of cars and they end up going to the Meyer parking lot. And it was for me is a kid who wanted to be a cop i'm i'm 17 or 18 at this point up this is the coolest thing in the world for me because they're like they're like yeah we we got them they're coming down they're coming down grand river they're turning the mire get them go go yeah. and then all these police cars some of them marked some of them not come out and including us yeah come yeah. out of nowhere right surround these guys in the parking lot you know these guys are jumping out with rifles get out of the car it was mm-hmm. so cool they grab the guys up but then 
you happen to be the only one working that was an evidence technician. Like, I, I think I made a few phone calls mm-hmm. because I was a supervisor. Yeah. And, you know, union regulations and, you know, whatnot, I, it, you try to give, if there's any overtime to be had, you try to give it to the to the officers. Right. So so I, I think I had made a couple calls. To the other F-techs. To, to the, off, the, ev, the evidence techs at the officer rank because I was a sergeant at mm-hmm. the time. <clears throat> And it was what midnight maybe, mm-hmm. and of course no, nobody wanted to come in. Nobody's for that. coming in, and I, as as I recall, it was like twelve degrees out. Yeah, it was about 10, 12 degrees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So nobody's coming out for that. So yeah. <laughs> so and anyways, you end up being the only one there to process it, and right, I had to process a bunch of cars that they broke into at this dealership. Yeah. And uh, you know, me as a teenager who wants to be a cop, I didn't care if we were stopping cars. I didn't care if we were. If you were doing uh, lifting prints out of cars, I thought the whole thing was sweet. So, it, yeah, it it was sweet until the point when I we nearly froze to death. Uh, yeah, you know, we we would, as I recall, if I'm remembering this correctly, because I've, if it's the dealership I'm thinking of down on Grand River, mm-hmm. well, we didn't have we only had one dealership, but I have. I have nearly froze to death several times at that dealership because they, it typically gets broken into in the dead of winter. Right, uh, but, right. naturally. But this, this one in particular, I, I recall throwing some fingerprint dust around or snapping a picture, throwing some fingerprint dust around and then running to the car to get warm. Yeah. Is yeah. that kind of how you recall it going yeah, down? Yeah, I do. And I remember being cold, but I didn't even care. I was just yeah so excited. To, I was excited. It was cool. So EvTech work for the young cop, up close and personal with dead bodies, you'll get filthy and you might get cold. So uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I absolutely loved it, Doug. It was probably, it, not probably, hands down, it was the highlight of my career, being an evidence tech. Absolutely loved it. So that was probably one of your favorite parts then of your career, you'd say? Oh, easily, easily. I mean, I've had some cool cases in my career, but as far as assignments go, Love being an FTech. I mean, I when I made the rank of lieutenant, which is, you know, um, in a department our size, lieutenant is almost the equivalent of being like a deputy chief. When I was the rank of lieutenant, I would still go out and sling fingerprint powder around when I got the chance. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> um, I, I can talk about the pizza box real quick and then maybe we can wrap it up. I, you know, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, we, we mentioned it earlier. Why don't we, why don't we yeah. touch on the pizza box real quick? So when you're talking about... Um, fingerprinting collecting latent prints now that the word latent means invisible so you're 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 taking an object that you believe may have been touched by a perpetrator or a suspect um the the purpose in trying to collect a latent print is you you take a fingerprint brush and some sort of powder which is your medium and you uh, apply the powder to the, the object and, and what's taking place here is basically the, that powder, if it's black or white or red or silver, whatever the color is, it doesn't matter. The idea here is that the powder attaches itself to the oils and the perspiration that come off of human skin. Mm-hmm. And when, when there's a transfer from human skin onto an object, the, the, the ridges from your fingerprints sometimes will also transfer. So you apply this powder and basically you're making it go from latent to visible. Mm -hmm. That works really well on glass and hard plastic surfaces. It's a little trickier when you're talking about clothing or paper or cardboard. Well, 
one particular case and I'm, I'm kind of proud of, I don't even remember now if we got a conviction on this, but I'm, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still proud of it. That you got. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had an armed robbery. Poor, poor, poor young man delivering a pizza gets robbed uh, in, in this, this complex, he, he, apartment complex, he gets robbed and, um, didn't have much of a description. So I, I collect the pizza box and, uh, you know, because it was, it was the thing known to be touched by the, the, the suspect. And I, I put on gloves myself, so I'm not transferring my latent fingerprints onto the box. I, mm-hmm. I glove up and I take the box back to the station and, and I applied, um, black magnetic powder to this pizza box. You would allude. You would. You would spoke of having mag powder or magnetic powder in yep. your in your kit. Well, magnetic powder is good for these types of services, like a styrofoam cup, or a pizza, a cardboard pizza box. And I, one of the one of the cool things I've done as an evidence tech, and I, I don't know, some guys maybe in a bigger agency might laugh at me and say, "Wow, that's the big highlight of your career." <laughs> I got fingerprints off of a pizza box, a cardboard pizza box using magnetic fingerprint powder. Usable fingerprints. They were usable, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes some prints are better than others. You might get a smear, which has no identifying characteristics. This mm-hmm. this was a usable print that I think I actually did send to the lab. I don't think we got a hit on it, but yeah. Yeah, which I mean, for anybody who knows anything about fingerprints and how they're transferred and developed, mm-hmm. that's impressive. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. is That is not a surface that you would generally look at and think that it's going to hold fingerprints right i mean kind of a lame story i mean let's be honest compared to the ford plant and uh, you know it's still photographing maggots and human beings eyes i mean for some for the big pizza pizza box caper (laughs) (laughs) for i mean for anybody who knows anything about fingerprints that's going to be impressive yeah I'm impressed. Yeah, okay. I have bragged well, about well, that, that to people that, on your behalf before. That that makes one of us. I, I doubt anyone in the audience is going to be bragging about my big pizza box. <laughs> it's it's still cool. All right. Anything anything you think we missed? Anything? That, I uh, I don't think so, Doug. I think I yeah I've I had a bunch of notes here, and I think we covered everything we wanted to cover. All right. Do you want to go into our closing ritual here? Our closing ritual. Yes. Yes. Um. As you tee your head off your microphone. Yeah, that felt that felt good. <laughs> um, speaking of that, because you just teed your head off your microphone by mistake. Yes. Um, if anybody who's listening would mind, you know, leave us a comment, hmm. uh, send us a message on any of our platforms that I'm going to give out here in a second. Um, if you'd be interested in this also being a video format podcast, um, so you could watch it or you could listen to it, or um, watch it audio and video um that's an idea we've kind of kicked around a little bit i'm Mm -hmm. just kind of curious to see if there's any interest in it if people would prefer that or like it um i think it'd be kind of cool because then if i learn how to do the editing side of it we could definitely have visual aids as well Mm. in in some of our some of our stories and some of the stuff we talk about it would be i would have to learn how to do that okay but if there's interest for it shoot us a message drop us a comment let us know and before I forget, yes, a couple times we have checked the analytics on, on how we're doing, who's listening, where they're listening. <laughs> we have someone in the great nation of Belgium yeah, listening pretty regularly. Yeah, to, pretty much every episode. To the Cop House podcast. I don't know who in Belgium is listening to this. Thank you. 
Yes, thank, thank you, mystery Belgian man. Thank you for listening in Belgium. And if it's you, and I, if you chime in on one of our social media platforms, man, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, drop us a comment. Shoot yeah. us a message. Right. Thanks, Belgium. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, follow us on on our social medias. We are the Cop House Podcast on Facebook, at Cop House Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Um, share share the show with a friend. Leave us a comment. Leave us a review. It does help um, with algorithms and stuff and making it be recommended to other people. Um, also, we're on YouTube now. Uh, mm. You can also listen on YouTube in addition to wherever you already listen. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, pretty much any of the podcast platforms. And to our brothers and sisters out there who are working the road, you're putting on a uniform every day. Thank you. We appreciate you. And to the EvTechs out there, who are working that lonely shift, just them and, and a deceased person. Thank you. Be careful, everyone. Be safe, everybody. Wow.